Welcome to the Humanity Leadership Podcast. My name is David Wheatley. We're here to talk leadership in small, bite-sized and practical chunks. Enjoy. Welcome to this episode of the Humanity Leadership Podcast. And uh, this week, I'm going to be talking to the author Chris DeSantis about his book, Why I Find You Irritating, Navigating Generational Friction at Work. And Chris is an independent organizational behavior, practitioner, speaker, podcaster, and author with over 35 years of experience working primarily with clients in professional service firms, both domestically and internationally. And over the past 15 years, has been invited to speak on generational issues in the workplace at hundreds of leading U.S. law and accounting firms, as well as many of the major insurance and pharma companies. He has an undergraduate degree in business from the University of Notre Dame, a master's degree in business from the University of Denver, and a master's degree in organizational development from Loyola University. And he's going to be coming to us today from a quiet corner of his Lincoln Park neighborhood in Chicago. Well, welcome, Chris. I appreciate you coming along and joining us on this podcast today. Well, thank you very much, David. I really appreciate you having me. I, I hope this goes well. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. If it doesn't, it's all editable. <laughs> so, um, and I, as I was just saying, as we, we briefly chat beforehand, I get sent a lot of books and, in, and information about people and and not very many of them pass my uh, my my gate stage gates, but uh, yours was interesting, and that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. But before we start, just give us beyond your bio the thirty second information that that makes it. Why should we listen to you about generational differences? Well, I've been uh, aware of this topic for about eighteen years, and to your point, I've read about sixty or seventy of these books uh, just to get a sense of what the topic is. And what I've tried to create is a space that hasn't been covered because I think there was a lot of uh, assumption when these people write books about categories. I'm trying to debunk uh, and separate uh, the perceptual differences from actual differences, and then debunk some of the uh, sort of the uh, exaggerations of difference that I think we encounter. Well, which is what attracted me, because that's the stuff that's always uh, pushed me away from talking generational differences. So the book is Why I Find You Irritating. Mm-hmm. I've just thrown it on the floor, otherwise I'd show it. Um, so so the I key, show it. Yeah, thank you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> My, mine's now spread across the floor. <laughs> uh, and there's a few concepts that I was hoping you could uh, enlighten us on today. That, uh, And I said, one of the reasons that's steered me away from generational differences in the past has been stereotyping. Yes. So yes. talk to us a little about your take on stereotyping and salience bias. Yes, that's under one of the chapters I talk about generalizing, because I think humans generalize. And one of the big pushbacks on this very topic is, oh, you're generalizing across a whole group. Well, of course I am. And I am not suggesting I'm right either. So I have to go back to the definition of generalizing. And I use the work of Noam Chomsky. Uh, he's a, a linguist, and but he talks about what is the process by which humans do this? And so I, decon- uh, I use his deconstructing. First, there's this notion of... Um, you, you, you delete. And when I say by delete, that means things that are common to us, you and I that have in common, we don't notice as readily. We just think that's the assumption. That's just who we are to each other. It's when we notice the difference. And for instance, in our world, I notice that you have an accent different than my own. Now with that, I, I, okay, I will remember that as it were. And then I go back to my memory. Now I will remember that. And this leads us to distortion. So I will remember that I met somebody from uh, Britain who has an accent. And then I start to think, oh, 
since my, my mind's not a camcorder, I distort the memory and says, well, what do I have my experiences with Brits? And so then I start to group those experiences if I know all Brits by virtue of my, my, my sample set, as it were. And then that sinks into the layer of generalization because eventually we don't want this cognitive load of having to remember each person we encounter, but rather we want to remember through the group. And that's what leads us to generalization, which of course has utility. It has utility because you got to get through the day. If I had to meet everybody as a novel event, it would be a very long day. So what I do is I use this as a heuristic in terms of, oh, a, a Brit. Oh, what do I know about the Brits? You know, okay. And then I sort of make these uh, statements, which aren't always right, by the way. And, but, and the salience effect is I don't need to be right all the time. I just need to see that I'm right some of the time. Salience is if it's salient and I notice it and then you do it, I say, aha, of course you do it because that's what I think of you. Right. So we're so lazy. We don't we don't look for counter information. We just look for confirmational information. And then we just go about our day thinking we are absolutely right about everyone. I debunk some of that when I talk about generational differences, because the, the young get get a lot of grief. <laughs> so that that grief, uh, I mean, a, a lot of it is, hey, they they don't seem to want to do as they're told. They, uh, right, they you right. need to be coddled and, and brought along right. and every, everybody got a trophy for participating. Right, right. In fact, so, those are all titles of books, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the, the books that you've read, yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, having run a soccer program, we used to give trophies for participating because yes. in the place that we were, that might be the only trophy those kids got. Well, and, it's an interesting, you've made an interesting, really interesting point. You gave the trophy to the children, and but the children are blamed for accepting it. <laughs> Which gets into the bias again. Yes, it does get into the bias because then we think, oh, wow, they get a trophy for everything. No, they are given a trophy for everything, which was part of the self-esteem movement. And the self-esteem movement was a mistake. It's a mistake. I think all God's children are good. We need evidence of greatness. And that was the failing of the program. You see what I'm saying? So it's an yeah. empty promise, as it were. But I do think recognition works. Yeah. Which you kind of lead me to the, the second question I had today, which is, um, why do boomers have so many challenges with millennials when they raised them? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because of our, our the incongruence of the experience. Um, boomers, myself, I'm a boomer. Uh, I was raised under what I, I call in the book a tell-do model. Tell-do means I'm told I do it. I'm told I do it. I went to school under a tell-do model, and then I went to work under a tell-do model. That's all congruent. That's all congruent, meaning, okay, my life didn't change at all. What we have done to the young, though, is we've raised them, millennials in particular, and actually the next generation as well in a similar model, but slightly different. We've raised them under an engage, discuss model, a dialogue model. So what happens in the home, we have moved from a tell you what to do to discuss what you are doing. It's, it's like when I was a young person and any of your listeners out here as a boomer, I would be very surprised if any of you were asked, where would you like to go on a vacation? I would be very surprised. I think it was just a privilege to go on a vacation. And then you're supposed to shut up and, and sit in the back seat for three hours, whatever it is. So what they have done is what parents have done is they have said, no, no, let's engage our children more. Now, that model of engagement becomes the child's habit as an adult. So now they are used to a dialogue. 
Now, imagine the poor, the poor kid, they move from the home to the workplace eventually, and now they expect a dialogue when the boomer expects a tell-do exchange. And this isn't open for conversation, which uh, quite frankly is highly incongruent for the young person. So, uh, because what the boomer does is they don't view the young person as, as necessarily their own offspring. They view them as a younger versions of themselves in the workplace, and this is how they survive the workplace. Right. So do you think it would be different if it was their own offspring? And we do a lot of work with family businesses. I'm interested to see, is there a difference when you go to work versus at home? Well, I, I, I do think there is a difference in, in how you engage in the home and how you engage in work. And so, and therefore you become the role. This is self-complexity theory. You are not you all through the day, you are the role you play through the day. And so at work, again, to your a multifamily environment where it's a multi-generational, they are in the role of leading an organization and in the home, they are in the role of being a parent. So the confusion becomes when they cross roles with their child. Yeah, and, and if that happens, if I'm, if I'm in the role as a boomer, for example, in a, a leadership role and I'm, I'm giving my kid the tell do at work and then I go back home and it's all the explain that amplifies that confusion. It, it, it not only amplifies it, it, it's it's surprising to the young person because they don't know what they have done wrong. What have I done wrong here in one circumstances and right in another? You see, that's one of the things we, we see these poor people or these young people as being obstinate or 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 uh, insubordinate or inappropriately challenging when in fact they're just engaging in dialogue. Yeah. This is, but we're not used to that. So we take it differently than what they might mean it. Don't get me wrong. I, I am sure there are obstinate young people. There are, I'm sure they're insubordinate young people, but they, that is not the normative, uh, and should be, that should not be the normative interpretation of who they are. Uh, and if you go into this, you mentioned the boomers and the millennials, and, mm -hmm. and I, I just slide into the X's just, and I'll hang oh, on I, to that. Um, yeah. But only just, yeah, uh, I won't let you define me by my exness because I'm nearly <laughs> a boomer. But the, um, the, the, the those definitions you define and, and you define them by uh, temporal culture in some ways. Yes, so, yes. Tell me a bit more about that. Yes, we are a compilation of the experiences that we had when we were younger. And so uh, they are the experiences are typically unique to the age of when you were growing up. So there are things like what what was the socioeconomics of the time you were growing up in the in sort of the uh, society. And so that is probably unique to whatever window of time we were, unless there's a socioeconomic consistency, which there isn't. There's up there's a sort of an up and down of that. The other things are what what were events that occurred? I would call these the flashbulb uh, memories or the catalytic uh, uh, events, uh, sort of the cultural catalytic events that shaped your view. Like I was a young person. We landed on the moon as a child. I'm thinking, wow, we can get to the moon. Okay. That's hopeful. So in that sense, you see these things that shapes you, whatever those are. Uh, some of these poor young people are living through today. They're seeing this excessive violence in the schools and, and the threat and red drills and police in their schools. That's going to shape them at some point. So and the point of that is what exposed what you're exposed to. And lastly, what is your cohort group doing? What are the kids that you hung around with experiencing and what messages are they sharing in prioritizations? For instance, today they're sharing climate change existential threat. You see that is going to shape them in a way that's different than how it shaped me. So temporal simply means at that time, what is the culture that we are creating and that carries forward in the group that we are part of? Which is when we get to stereotyping, that's the, the generalizations that we can take as a whole rather yes. than those individual pieces. And yeah. I, there's a piece of data that talks about uh, in your book about 
talks about how people vote depending on whether they registered just before or just after 9-11. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because we are we are highly influenced by by the events around us, even though we don't think we are influenced by events. You see, humans are, are we're, we think we're much more clever than we are sometimes, but it's actually just uh, a lot of what we go through are through the motions, meaning that it's it's integrated into how we think we don't we are not prone to be reflective and we are certainly not prone to be reflective in a work day. So that's why we become accusatory or generalized or stereotype. It's faster. Right. So then if I take this engage and discuss uh, idea of mm -hmm. the, the millennials and, and cross match it with, we wrote a book called what great teams to great a few years ago. That's based on our work with teams over 22 years. And what, one of the things we found is that the setup of a team is significantly more important these days. Let's have the conversation about who we are, what we bring to the table. Let's get alignment about our reality. Let's make sure we all understand what we're trying to achieve and why and what yes. our mutual behavioral expectations are of each other. It feels like that overlaps with that engaged discuss. You are so spot on with this. In fact, I just finished a book. I think it was Think Again, Adam Grant's book, and he talks about these two aspects of teams that are success or, or task and relationships. And teams that just focus on task uh, without absence of relationships are less likely to be high performing. Right. Your point is, and my point in the book is the same, we should be having expectation meetings with our young colleagues in terms of what what, why do I like what I do? What do you hope to achieve in what you do? What do you need from me in terms of help? Uh, these are the rules for how we will operate, meaning this is what I expect of you, how I expect you to communicate. This is what quality looks like. So all of those things are surfaced. You see, I, I'm of the model, that, or I'm of the belief that most work is, is uh, implicit in terms of the rules. And you only learn the rules after you break the rules. <laughs> so then if, that, if we're... Uh... We're only learning those rules after we've broken them and we we have more conversation about the relationship rather than the task in order to get to the task. Yes. That's driven by the needs of the majority of the generation that's coming through the workplace at the moment. Well, it's driven by humans, a human desire. It's the pronouncement of the need that is unique to the generation. You see, boomers have always wanted to know why, but we were shot down after we asked it. If I said, why did you, why are we doing that? The answer would, because I said so. So this conversation is a, is it a, you know, it's an end. So we learned, we boomers and Gen X learned to live with the ambiguity of this, even though we don't care for it any more than the young, the young don't live with the ambiguity of this. They state, what do we need to do here? It's why Simon Sinek's book was so successful. Start with why I've summarized the book really. Yeah. I, I'm normally wearing my ghost frame glasses will advertise myself as a poor man, Simon Sinek. Yeah, it's the, but I haven't got the right glasses on today, but we'll, we'll leave him out the picture. The, so that then if, if I'm a boomer or an ex, and as you can imagine, many of the people that we work with in a leadership role these days are in that category. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding exactly the title of your book that a bunch of people who work for me are <laughs> irritating me. Yes. What's the path that I should be looking at taking? Well, I think one of the things uh, um, you should have to look at is who am I at the table and what works for me? And what we do is we project what works for me onto them. And that sh this should also work to, for you. 
And I think it goes back to your point earlier is say, what do you need from me to be successful? And now what we're doing is we're moving into a negotiation between us because I think our best negotiators are our children because they've been negotiating since they were four years old. So enter into the negotiation of, and that leads us to an agreement of expectations between us as opposed to just saying, this is who they are. Because let me make a point about the Gen Xers. Gen Xers in particular are most annoyed, most annoyed, because they've just figured people should figure this out themselves. You see, if they come from the uh, latchkey kid, they, they sort of figured it out. Nobody said to them, okay, here's, I'm going to teach you how to make dinner. They just had to figure out how to make dinner. Do your homework, you know, do all the things you're supposed to do on your own. And what they think of the young, to some degree, is they call them needy. Those young are so needy. They are not needy. They are interdependent where you are independent. So what you end up doing is you expect them to be as you are, as independent as you are. And so you, you ding them for not again being you. And I'm saying to your point again in your book, I'm sure you said this as well, diversity is the key to a team. So we don't want a team of all independents. We want a team of people that reflect different values and different, different ways of perspectives. That's a better team. Which then links it back to emotional intelligence as well. Yes, uh, yes, it does. If, if I'm aware of where I'm at and I'm aware of others and I can better integrate you know, those yes. two things, then yes. I'm in a better shape to lead that team. And the, conversely, it's the ex external self-awareness that the young need to see, that they, they are seen not as themselves, but rather the perception others have of them. Right. And so whenever they act in a way that is congruent with that perception, they'll get dinged for it. So they have to say, how do I adapt to this situation to get past these, this, these um, generalizations about me that aren't correct? So, uh, and, and those, you know, it's interesting, those generalizations, they, they tend to overlap. You've alluded to this already. Um, there's a couple of places that I've seen. One of them was in the law enforcement community where uh, a 20 something year old kid, as mm -hmm. I might call them, graduated from college, gone into the law enforcement world. And uh, mum would call up to find out how son was doing oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> as the extension of the helicopter parent. And yes. you know, son's now got a gun and a badge. Right. No, that's right. No, it's interesting because this is at, again, that's the, the worst manifestation of this parenting model is the helicopter parent or the other version of that, the snowplow parent, the parent that removes all obstacles. What, what's interesting about that is the press loves this kind of uh, information because it makes for an interesting article. And then when you have a few of these articles, I call the, I call the young, and I mentioned this, uh, I call the young, the, or the millennials, the Florida man of generations because every headline with Florida man in it is a tragedy. That's the expectation. Now you just take Florida man out and you put millennial. Now we have a, a series of tragedies that we, we shape together in terms of put them all together and say, aha, look at these young people. They are, they are this. Which they then comes back this. to that bias again. Exactly. The bias is reinforcing by what you and we live in the bubble of who we are. We don't explore difference. We stay within the balkanized view of what we think is right. And then we look for evidence that supports that and what we read. So you you kind of close up in, as part of your book talking about the value of mentorship. Yes. Yes, yes. I'm a, although I, 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 I had to rewrite that chapter because I was a little too harsh, apparently. <laughs> they told me it was a little too harsh. Oh, you've no. got an editor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had more than one editor who said, you know, Chris, you might want to take that back a notch. But the point I was making in this is mentoring in its original sense through the boomer lens was an organic event that just happened as a, as a consequence of somebody noticing you. It was never meant preemptively. You would never say, I'm going to I'm going to find my mentor. It was in reflection that you said I had a mentor, you see? So in that sense, what we've done now is we flipped it. 
We've said, we're going to give you a mentor. And the problem I have with the language, the language is loaded. It implies an intimacy that is not earned. This, of course, creates anxiety for both parties because all of a sudden this young person is coming forward and they might be, okay, I got to share my life with you. Okay, I'll tell you who I am. And then the this more senior person goes, oh my God, why are you sharing all this information <laughs> with me about you? I don't, it's, you see what I'm saying? So there's a, there, this idea of, of, of going too far too soon uh, and, and orchestrating it in terms of a policy is against what we do in terms of building an organic relationship. My advice in the book is step back a little bit. Don't use that term. Use a term like advisor, shepherd, guide, anything that says, I'm help, I need your advice and I want to give my advice. And we should narrow it to what both parties are comfortable doing and then let it flow if it becomes a mentoring event. Right. That's where I see. I just think it's challenging. Now, we say, well, we didn't have mentoring events. We didn't, we didn't have mentoring programs just because uh, there were now the young are saying, and you know this from the Gallup poll, I need somebody who's interested in, in developing me. I need somebody who cares about me. I need people at work who, who know who I am. This is in response to that. I just think the language they're using is loaded. Right. Which then creates a loaded conversation and, and, exactly. and more potential tension. Oh my God. And then they don't even define because everyone, they don't even define it between themselves because the young will infer mentor slash sponsor, you see, and that's, a, that's another layer of difference that doesn't exist either, because you have to really earn that because that's the political capital that the, the mentor has to expend to support you. And that isn't given freely. Right. And so it's, it's not that the relationships are wrong. It's that the, no. the way we're labeling them and the way we're going about them is creating more tension than it is value. Yes, yes. And, and again, if it were just stay to advisor, it's easy to flip around. But if you say, I'm, you're my mentor, and I don't like you as a young person, how do you get out of that? Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Like, how do you because yeah. there's no way that they were going to say, Oh, no, I'm, I'm, you know, they maybe they just ghost the person. But at some point, they it's asymmetric in the power. And I don't want to offend a power source. But if it's yeah. just advising, then you say, I'll just get another advisor, because this is the thing I want to be advice on. And you're good in this area, whereas they're good in that. Right. The term we use, uh, I teach on Michigan State's executive MBA program, and I'm going to kick off another 120 uh, candidates this coming weekend. And wow. the term we use is the your personal board of directors. Yeah, I love uh, that. See, I love that. That's brilliant because that says uh, for you, I need this help from you. I need this help. So it gives people a narrow range of sort of what I can do. And it makes both parties a lot more comfortable. Yeah. And it, it, then goes on doesn't matter how old you are where no. you should always have a personal board of directors that you can tap into i agree the other thing about mentoring is the assignment is always uh, um young to old and i'm not sure that that's the way to go here because there's so many other ways to mentor well and one of the things that comes out of your book is that the the old to use your term yeah. there could <laughs> right. probably value from listening to the young a little bit exactly. as, as to what they're bringing to the table and why they're asking well, I, I, I've used the term reverse mentoring because the young, what they bring to the table, especially the Gen Z, is that they are they are digitally fluent, whereas I think uh, millennials are digitally aware. I don't think they're as fluent as the as their next. Uh, so what we and the young are very good with social media. So they should be teaching social media to people my age and how to leverage that more effectively because we're not very good with that. You know, we're, we're just not. We're not. I'm, I'm not on TikTok, although I think there's an opportunity there. I just don't want to make a 30 second silly video. Yeah. 
I'm not a dancer. <laughs> you're, you're, you're putting some judgment to it in the way I know I am. See, well. I'm stereotyping. <laughs> I apologize to everybody out there who's a fan of TikTok. I don't mean to do that, but that's just what I've done. <laughs> but, but that's, I think that kind of sums up the what we do do, yes. isn't it? Because yes. we do look at things with, you know, I, I look at my parents who are 86 and 92 and um, my son lives just down the road from them who's 29 and they're often saying, you know, he has three phones. Can't the guy put this? Well, oh, it's yeah. because he's on a council and a work and things like this. And and uh, and they still have flip phones, flip oh, phones yeah. that have no smartness to them. No, I, well, at least they have a flip phone. <laughs> <laughs> it took some doing. But the problem is they turn it off most of the time. Oh they yeah, no, no, turn right. it on when they need it. Which, right, right, right. You know, but that again is that clash of why would yes. I need this? You know, exactly. And, you know, that they would say that they had more freedom when the phone was attached to the wall than the kids right. do today when the phone's on their in their pocket. Well, another thing you're talking about here is the habit of who we are also gets in the way. So the longer you do something, it's not a generational, it's a habitual issue as well. And by the way, all of us are willing to learn things if it has if it has relevance to what we do and it fits in our lives. But to learn something that doesn't have relevance, it seems to be a waste of time. So, so so we have to make TikTok relevant to you. And exactly. Then you it's right? exactly right. Because I'm not going to learn to dance anybody. I'm not doing that too soon. <laughs> well, you should go back. I had a great interview with uh, her name. She uh, uh, she wrote a book called Lead and Follow, which is uh, lessons about leadership from the tango. Oh, now that's interesting. That so, would be, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how far that would go with me, but I, I like the idea of it. But the, uh, the concept was great. And uh, you should absolutely go back into the archive of the Humanity Leadership Podcast to look up that one because uh, the fact her name's uh, lost in my brain there somewhere. It was a really good conversation. The concept was really good. So don't give up that thought that you might be dancing at some point. Well, it, it sounds to me, it sounds to me an, like an improv event where you follow the follower in the sense that you you are in sync with each other. And so you're sort of, that makes sense to me, but yeah. I'm not sure if I could go the whole book on that, but I think I would like to yeah, find well, out more. <laughs> I just want to see the 30 second version of you dancing as a result of it. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> so Although the, I do think, I will say this, I hate to, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I do think the, the future of learning has a high visual component. And I think it's going to be modular, you know, the, this TikTok, some version of this, and it may be some larger capacity, which would have to be, is going to be a method methodology of teaching as you well know as you know because you're you're more involved in teaching than i am well it's my son does everything my eldest son does everything because of youtube oh um, my god yeah i couldn't um, take anything apart without youtube no no it's phenomenal isn't it and yeah. i often wonder about the kind of people who spend all their days filming I, stuff so that yeah. <laughs> who are yeah. these people <laughs> so, exactly but i appreciate them so, no so i do too the book is why i find you irritating by chris DeSantis, and uh Tell us some more about where people can find find you. Yes. The, well, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's easy. That's in my age group. <laughs> and the book itself you can is available through Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Books A Million or the publisher um, uh, Amplify Books. My website is CP DeSantis. So that will give you a better sense of all the things that I know something about besides generational differences, which is one of the pieces of, uh, of what I do. And the last thing, if you ever have a question of me, and I appreciate Dave allowing me to say this, but I have a, uh, a podcast called Cubicle Confidential. And I do it with my colleague, Mary Abijay, who wrote a book, if you might like, Managing Up. And so we take three questions a week from uh, listeners on any particular topic around work. And so there, it's, we do a, a, some variation of this, but it's just a very simple, uh, we give about 
you know, 30 minutes of advice. Yeah, I our, love that idea. Yeah, I simple love that and concept. Sweet. And yeah. you keep it confidential. So you give the answers, but nobody needs to know who asked the question. Nobody knows. Nobody. <laughs> we never, we haven't made that mistake yet. <laughs> <laughs> but that's good. Well, Chris, thanks for joining us this afternoon. And I encourage people to go out and take a look at why I find you irritating. It's uh, not only an amusing cover, but it's, uh, it's worth reading. So thank you for your time. Thank you, David. I really appreciate this. And thank you all. So that was Chris DeSantis, and we were talking about Why I Find You Irritating, available at all good bookstores, I think. And um, he talks a, a little bit uh, about the how, what, and why of generational dynamics and changes at work that are, are impacting that Why I Find You Irritating. And I'd highly encourage you to take a look at his book. And it's, say, I picked it up off the floor now. <laughs> so uh, Why I Find You Irritating, well worth a look. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. That was the Humanity Leadership Podcast. My name's David Wheatley. For further information about Humanity, go to humanity.com or check out our latest book, What Great Teams Do Great, from all good bookstores. Have a good one. Stay healthy.